On the 14th of June 2017, the Grenfell fire killed 72 people, 18 of whom were children. In one night, 129 homes were destroyed and a community was traumatised. As my guest today writes, it was the most serious crime committed on British soil this century. And it was a crime because it shouldn't have happened. Over the course of four decades, layers and layers of government failure and corporate malice had put thousands of high-rise residents at risk. Grenfell was the tragic result. And we now sit here five and a half years on from the Grenfell tragedy. Thanks to the Grenfell inquiry, which has heard over 400 days of evidence, we can ascertain in pretty granular detail exactly what circumstances and which decisions led to it. And that evidence, along with interviews with those affected, forms the basis of the moving and infuriating book, Show Me the Bodies, How We Let Grenfell Happen. Its author is Peter Apps, who joins me today. You're listening to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker, the podcast where I choose the issues I think are essential for understanding the world today and make a whole series from them. We're now midway through season one, which is on Britain's rental crisis. To listen to all episodes in the series and to support the show, please visit patreon.com forward slash crash course pod, where you can sign up for as little as £3 a month. Peter Apps, thank you for joining me for Crash Course. Um, can I get you to start uh, in a way I don't usually start interviews? I want you to read the first two pages of, of your book. I think the audience will, will understand why after you've, after sure. you've done it. Sure, okay. Um... It should have been a normal flat fire. It was just an electrical appliance malfunctioning in a flat on the sixth floor of a 1950s council block. The London Fire Brigade attend these sorts of events every day. Often they put it out without the other residents of the building even knowing. But this fire would be different. The tower block had been poorly maintained and serious fire safety defects had been allowed to fester. Residents had raised their concerns without any success. A legally required risk assessment had not been carried out. Worse, a recent refurbishment had seen highly combustible panels fixed to the external wall. It was the middle of a hot summer when the fire broke out, the flames licking through an open window, igniting one of the panels. It began to spread up the building, threatening other flats. This took the fire service by surprise. Fire is not supposed to spread from flat to flat. As call after call came in from trapped residents, the call handlers fell back on the textbook advice, stay put. On the ground, the rescue operation became chaotic. This was outside the firefighters' training, and they didn't know how to respond. Outdated equipment hindered the coordination of the response. Command was passed rapidly from one officer to another. Key information necessary to save the trapped residents was not conveyed to the teams on the ground quickly enough. Residents were left waiting desperately for help that never came. If they had been told to flee, they would likely have lived. Harrying 999 calls, which would later be played at a mammoth public inquest, recorded the rising panic of those trapped as smoke filled their burning flats. The fire ripped through the poorly maintained building. Fire doors failed. Eventually, the single staircase filled up with pitch-dark, choking smoke. In just one bathroom, two mothers and their three children died, including a baby born just weeks before. The council were aware of our concerns. We told them we needed certain measures put into place, one resident told the Evening Standard just days after the fire. But every time we complained... They told us they had taken our concerns on board, but nothing ever happened. Questions rapidly emerged about other social housing tower blocks around the country, as it appeared some of the safety issues which had turned this fire into a disaster were widespread. Amid a storm of criticism, the fire service said it would review the stay put advice it had given trapped residents. It was Britain's worst ever tower block fire. Politicians solemnly promised it would never happen again. These promises would be broken, because this wasn't the Grenfell Tower fire of 2017. It was a fire at Lackenall House, a tower block in Southwark, in south-east London, in 2009. You know, I got you to start by reading those first two pages just because of how much they took me back when, when I was reading it. And I suppose that's because we think of Grenfell as something that, which, which is so horrific, so tragic, that it couldn't possibly have been foreseen. If people had foreseen this could happen, it wouldn't have happened. Someone must have stopped it. And I think what your book shows and what that introduction shows is that it, it could have been. Um, I mean, that's obviously the theme of your book and what we'll be talking about throughout this podcast. So I suppose, can I start by getting you to talk about that Lacknell House fire and also your relation to it? Because you were talking about many of these issues before Grenfell happened. Yeah, sure. So 
I mean, you're right in the sense that that is the 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 single message, if there is one that I wanted to get across with the book, is that this could have been avoided. It was allowed to happen, um, and Lacanall House is kind of the, the the starkest way of demonstrating that. Um, Lacanall is a it's a block of um, masonettes in um, Camberwell in Southwark, um, South East London, uh, and there was a fire which I described in the intro, which shared startling similarities with the Grenfell Tower fire. Um, it spreads via the external wall. It then spreads internally because of defects and the fire brigade aren't able to evacuate it. Um, that, those six deaths, I mean, that was a major news story at the time. People probably remember it. Um, it's quite a long time ago now, but it's not ancient history. Um, they led to a, a, this, this lengthy public inquiry, um, which happened in Brixton Town Hall, which um, I went to as a sort of very junior reporter. Um, and will stay with me, did stay with me forever, really. I mean, I, I was there when they played the 999 calls from um, uh, one of the mums who, who, who died with her children. Um, and that inquest uh, led to recommendations to the government um, of the day, uh, which, if implemented, I think it's, it's safe to say, without any exaggeration, would have stopped Grenfell from happening. Um, they included uh, the fitting of mandatory retrofitting of sprinklers in social housing. Um, if Grenfell had had sprinklers, it might have put out the fire in the fridge before it reached the cladding. Um, and almost more importantly than that, um, the, the, the government was supposed to, to conduct a review of building regulations with what the coroner called um, particular regard to external fire spread. And if they'd have done that, I think it's almost beyond doubt that they'd have realised that regulations were allowing these dangerous cladding products onto the market and so just a, a huge question from the moment that Grenfell had happened from the moment that anyone who knew that 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 story was going on in the background um which I did because of the job I do um when we woke up and saw what was happening in West London and in June 2017 it's just how was this allowed to happen how how possibly could we have let this risk fester knowing that even it would have been bad enough just for Lacanall to happen again but Lacanall happened in the middle of the day um people were awake people were at work people were at school and the risk was always that might happen again in the middle of the night when people are asleep and the building's full um and if it does many many more people will die and and effectively you know the British state and the industry accepted that risk um for four years and actually much longer which the inquiries demonstrated and i'll get into in the book but yeah can we talk about the physical reasons as to why a fire in a flat which was started in a fridge as far as i understand it or malfunctioning fridge became a huge inferno that burnt down a whole tower that's that, that was not supposed to happen the theory said it wouldn't happen what were the physical reasons? And I think, I mean, probably start with the cladding because that seems like it's the most important, but I know there were some others as well. I mean, before the cladding, so there's a fire in a fridge in a kitchen. That fire's got to get out to the external wall of the building and the route out was through the window. Um, but it, the reason it could go through the window is because the windows were badly designed, badly um, uh, fitted and had um, lots of combustible plastic inside them. So once that window caught fire, the fire got out to the outside of the building. When it reached the outside of the building... Um, it ignited uh, a panel which was made of material called ACM, um, which is it's sort of like it's a sandwich panel, really. It looks metallic to the naked eye, but it's actually a very thin metal sheet bonded to another metal sheet with plastic. And the plastic is polyethylene, um, which is uh, chemically the same as petrol. You, 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 it's a solid form of petrol, basically. Um, and actually in its solid form is more combustible than petrol because it's more dense so that that aluminium melts at quite a low temperature um polyethylene ignites at a very low temperature and so when fire touches that material it's stacked up in a straight line and so it's going to start burning at the bottom and effectively shoot straight up very very fast with a very very hot very aggressive fire um and because polyethylene melts as well as burns that's going to start dripping down and the fire's going to start moving laterally and, and downwards and, and very quickly you're going to have a, um, you know, an inferno really. Um, that then, because as I said, the, there's, a, there's, a, there's a failure with the windows, a glass will shatter in a fire eventually, but if it's glass that's sort of surrounded by combustible plastic, it's going to go very 
quickly. And so as soon as that fire starts burning on the outside of the building, it's going to start coming in as well. Um, and so that's what happened at Grenfell. But, you know, I mean, we've talked about Lacanel, but that exact thing with that exact material had been happening in the Middle East before Grenfell um, and, and other places in the world as well. France um, had seen a, a fire with ACM kill people. Um, it was known that this product could do that. Um, but it was not enough to stop it being wrapped around not just Grenfell, but several hundred buildings in the UK. Yeah, and I suppose, I mean, I think it's obvious to everyone why it's very dangerous to wrap a tall building with flammable material. I suppose why it was so catastrophic was because we also have a theory in this country whereby um, the whole point was that flats would be compartmentalised. So yeah. if there's a fire in one flat, it shouldn't concern anyone else in the block because while that flat might end up, you know, completely burning down and being unlivable, it won't spread to other flats. And you can imagine if you're in you know, a big concrete building, that might be the case. It wasn't the case yeah. um, here. Um, we'll talk about that stay put advice later. I want to talk about how that flammable cladding found its way onto the residential flats, because that is, I think, you know, the most outrageous part of all of this. And I actually want to read um, a passage from your book. So you write, over a period of at least 30 years, our representatives chose time and again not to act on mounting evidence that something needed to be done to prevent disaster in a high-rise building. They deliberately ran down, neglected and privatised the arms of the state that might have prevented a tragedy like Grenfell, and they allied themselves with a corporate world that evinced an almost psychopathic disregard for human life. And I want to start here with the corporate world. We'll move on to regulation later because just... Uh, a corporate world that evinced an almost psychopathic disregard for human life. They're very, very strong words. And I suppose, can you explain why you felt those words that strong were warranted here? Yeah, I mean, they are strong words, uh, but, you know, I, I, I chose them carefully. Um, honestly, like it, it sounds like hyperbole until you kind of realise what happened. I mean, the, the, the cladding panels were sold by a company called Arconic, um, which is it's, it's a huge, it's one of these, giant companies that you know you'll use their products every day when you drink a can of coke but you'll never know their name they're they're they're, they're trace their roots back to the aluminium company of america they're, they're they're sort of global giant um and they their french arm um produces this stuff acm cladding which i was describing a moment ago um from as early as 2004 um they were required to test this panel um to uh, European standards um, and when they did that test they discovered that if you kind of leave it in a flat sheet its fire performance is kind of not great but acceptable but if you bend it into an L shape in order to hang it on a building instead of sort of banging it on with rivets um, the fire performance is sort of goes through the floor um, I think it, it, uh, the numbers off the top of my head I think it creates 10 times as much heat um, burns seven times as fast, releases three times as much smoke. It's just this sort of devastating fire. Um, and Arconic had that testing from 2004 and it was shared at a very senior level within this French arm of the business. Um, and they were talking openly um, about the fact that that might therefore lead to a fire which killed a lot of people. It was a, it was a document which probably one of the most shocking documents the inquiry turned up, which was a, their marketing manager in 2007 went to sort of some niche industry con conference in um, Scandinavia somewhere. And th there was a fire engineer who was talking about that risk, that the idea that we have building products that are, you know, made effectively of petrol. Um, and he, he, he wrote a memo to his boss saying, we, we need to consider what the impacts would be for our business. If there was a fire involving our product, which killed 60 to 70 people. Um, and that was just one of several instances where senior figures within Arconic talked about being quote unquote in the know. Um, uh, someone said at one point, we're not clean. Um, they were sharing, uh, news reports of fires elsewhere in the world sort of saying, oh, we're lucky this one wasn't our product, but it could be next effectively. Um, but throughout that, they continue to sell this thing, this stuff in the UK, um, because UK regulations, as you say, we'll get onto it were poorly drafted and didn't overtly ban it. Um, and they, they they knew what they were doing. And certainly some people within the business did. I mean, the, the guy who wrote the we're in a no email wrote in one document that, you know, we know that this stuff's got a bad behavior and a fire, but we can still work with national regulations that aren't that restrictive. Um, and so I don't know what else you call 
knowing that you're exposing someone to that risk and doing it anyway, other than lacking empathy for other human beings, which is, <laughs> to put it differently, psychopathic. And yeah, I mean, you do, I suppose at the inquiry, there's been lots of sort of releases of emails and text messages. And in the book, sort of every time you read one of these emails or text messages between members of these companies, um, or, the, you know, the various companies involved, it's just like, whoa, you yeah. know, how were they behaving in this way where they knew that they were putting so many people in danger? And always at the front of their mind was, oh, I hope no one realizes how dangerous this is. Yeah. Instead of saying, because this is dangerous, we need to take it off. I mean, I, I, I'm probably, you know, I should say Arconic, they, they, they've, they've justified their position. They sort of say that they think that they were under the impression that UK regulations made everything safe and that, that they were dealing with professionals who would mitigate those risks. But the, the, it's, it's not disputed and not disputable that they had that testing. They knew that their product would burn like that in a fire if it, if it was exposed to one and they left it on the market anyway. Let's talk about UK regulations. Another really interesting fact in your book, you sort of say when Grenfell was built, so when it was completed in 1974, we had bylaws in London banning the use of flammable material on a building's exterior. And that law dated from 1666, so the Great Fire of London. Yeah. So for 300 years, we had a law which meant that you can't put flammable material on the side of a building. It seems sensible. It seems yeah. very sensible. Then for some reason, between 1974 and when Grenfell happened in 2017, it became the case that you put, could put flammable material on the exteriors of, of buildings. So why, as a society, did we make that sort of genius decision to say, oh, no, um, we are at such a highly developed stage of civilization that we can start coating buildings in flammable material again? Um, well, um, it, it happened during the 1980s at a time when the British economy was changing um, quite famously. Um sort of economic reforms that Thatcher's government were bringing in um, had at their heart this philosophy that the state should be less involved in the market. Um, it's not government's business, whether local or national, to tell businesses how to do their job. And so th this idea, which is still very much a dominant force in our politics of quote unquote cutting red tape and deregulation kind of took over as as a an economic philosophy um and that that directly impacted the construction sector it was led by michael hesertine who was a responsible minister at the time and he, he was overtly you know saying we should be freeing the industry to to innovate to um to, to build new buildings you know that people wanted to build big shopping centers for example but they couldn't because there were rules around the minimum distances to fire exits. So he says, this is just, uh, this is just silly. It's, it's, it's red tape. It's, it's, it's bureaucracy. We need to just free designers to design. Um, but the problem with that is if you don't have standards that require um, people to adopt more, buy, purchase more expensive products and do things that, would otherwise take money out of their profit margin, they won't. The free market operates in that way. It drives people to do the things that are most efficient and the things that will generate the the, the largest return. That's how businesses operate. Um, and so that's kind of on a high level what was happening. On a kind of more granular level, um, the government had this kind of, it's guidance, it's sort of you're supposed to follow it, but it's not mandatory. And they had standards within that guidance for... Um, the the stuff that you can put on the outside of a building and they just they they never updated that standard to catch up with modern um construction materials the idea was that if something if you put a flame to the surface of a, of a material and you take a sample of it it's about the size of a kind of coaster or a beer mat and put a flame to to it surface if it doesn't catch fire and propagate that flame then it's safe and that's fine if you're using a building material which is the same all the way through, like brick or timber. Um, it's much less fine if you're talking about something where the surface is not the same as the, the centre of the, the core of the product. Um, and so as I think one of the real problems we've had is that with, with the whole building regulation um, environment, the regulations get updated very, very slowly because the government doesn't like imposing restrictions, but technology moves very fast. Um, and once you've built buildings, it's, you can't, it's almost impossible to fix them if you then realise that the standards were too low and um, 
the stuff that's been put in inside them or on their walls isn't safe. Um, so we ended up in this position where th there were no real binding regulations. The, the guidance that existed was out of date and builders were really able and product manufacturers were able to get away with using things that should never really have ever been allowed. And I think, I suppose, you know, from their perspective, they're saying it's too prescriptive to say you can't put this on a wall, you can't use this material as part of a building. And as far as I understand it, they sort of switch to a model where they say, all you have to be able to tell us is that this building isn't flammable, isn't going to go up in flames. Yeah. And if you can show us some kind of test which shows that, we'll be happy. But then what that enabled was all of these, you know, companies to do a bunch of tests, ignore all the ones which showed it went up in flames, like shout about all the ones where it didn't go up in flames and sort of fix them to their favour. So I think you describe one where a company is fixing this flammable cladding in between huge slabs of concrete and because the thing doesn't burn down they say oh that means it's safe whereas in in actual in actual fact it's not going to be <laughs> yeah. used in a building between these huge slabs of of concrete uh, yeah i mean that was a, that was a test on insulation which is slightly different from cladding but yes i mean it, it, essentially that is that is a huge part of the problem i think like um i'd say there's kind of actually two separate things there i mean one is the kind of regulations and the guidance and um this kind of drive towards deregulation and then the other one is just the whole idea of testing and certifying products um which is something that i think has been a bit underappreciated just how large a scandal the grenfell tower inquiries revealed because you know what you have is a company that wants to get a product to market and then another company also private that runs a testing service um and company A pays company B to test its product and provide it with a report. And so immediately you have a conflict of interest because why would they want to upset their client by saying, actually, this isn't safe, so you can't take it to market. But also that's a very kind of closed secret process because it's all done by private companies. Um, everything that comes out of that test is commercially confidential. It's intellectual property. And so you never get to hear about test failures and you never even see the official report of the test. You see the marketing literature that the company produces afterwards. And for me, it just, it, it, this is about combustible cladding because that's what happened at Grenfell. But it asks these huge questions. How do we really trust anything that people, so much of what you kind of assume is a very kind of um, regulated, you know, legalistic statement on the back of a, a you know tin of beans is really just marketing you know how how do you know i mean one of the ones and it's been in the news recently so many products are claiming to be carbon neutral at the moment but that's the same model it's it's, it's a private company being paid to analyze this product providing it with a report and then selling a label really um and that that whole world i think needs some light shone on it um because it's just, it, I think it was described as um, ripe for industry capture um, by one of the lawyers acting for bereaved and survivors at the inquiry. And I think that about sums it up. Because it makes sense. If, if, if you get to choose your examiner, you're going to choose the one that's most lax. And then, yeah. so and then all, you all know, of these you... testing companies have an incentive to be as lax as possible and then because then they'll get more business. Completely. And it's even worse than that because you choose your examiner and then you also get to, if you fail, never tell anyone that you failed and take the test again with different questions. Let's talk about higher levels of government, I suppose, and moving on from the 80s, because there was bipartisan failure here. Um, lots of governments ignored warnings. You talk in the book about a select committee report by MPs in 1999, warning about the extent to which combustible materials were being put on high-rise buildings. And I think the MP Select Committee report, you quote them as saying, we do not believe that it should take a serious fire in which many people are killed before reasonable steps are taken towards minimising the risk. And this is specifically about combustible materials. So this would have applied to, to Grenfell. Labour presumably ignored that in 1999. Why did the new Labour government ignore these warnings? Um, I mean, it's it remains a bit of a mystery. No, no one has really come forward with a good explanation as to why Labour didn't um, take that you know, that that suggestion that we should just have non-combustible cladding, basically. Um, and also that that select committee also recommended that there should be regular risk assessments of cladding, which also wasn't done. Um, so I think it's just left to us to really surmise why they didn't do that. And certainly what the inquiry has shown is that there was quite vociferous industry lobbying behind the scenes against higher standards. Um, it wasn't just that select committee. Labour was also supposed to... Um, 
harmonize our national regime with the eu at that point in time and they were told that if they didn't then the uk would become a quote-unquote dumping ground for for combustible materials um and they didn't do it um there were there were documents saying there'll be economic consequences for the uk if we're unable to sell our products um that you know we 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 can't meet european standards but we can meet national ones and you know the, the, the a lot of the the what the inquiry has shown, I think, is whoever's in power, um, a lot of these kind of questions about what standards should we set, um, what uh, are the appropriate rules for industry are written through kind of focus groups and um, select groups that are comprised of industry. So wherever, whichever government you have, you have this voice of industry being given um a real kind of top seat at the table and um, they are very unlikely to write rules which go against their interests. I mean, I think as well, it's worth flagging with, with the Labour years. Um, in 2001, um, following that select committee report, um, Labour, the Labour Department, that was led by John Prescott at the time, commissioned some tests on different cladding products. And one of the products that they tested was the ACM materials, sort of solid petrol stuff, which I was talking about before. And that test, that test was carried out in an airport hangar. It's sort of a four-story mock wall that's built. It's supposed to last for half an hour, but after nine minutes, they have flames going 20 meters above the top of that rig. Um, and they had to stop the test for the safety of the people there because it would have probably burnt the facility down. Um, and the report that went back to the civil servants, I don't know whether it reached the ministerial desk, but certainly the civil servants said this stuff's on the market. It, it meets the, the um, guidance, the, the suggested level in guidance. Effectively, we need to do something about this. And it wasn't done. Um, and I said, somehow that's there's sort of, I mean, the party political questions on this, because when I tweeted that story out, um, you had people kind of like quote tweeting it and saying sort of F the Tories and that kind of thing. I'm like... I don't think you can hang this one on the Conservatives. I mean, it, one of the startling things about the kind of government sides of the Grenfell Tower story for me is that the the kind of shocking consistency through the 30 years from the, the 80s onwards, despite prime ministers, political parties, secretaries of state changing, we continued in the same direction. And certainly when... You know, which you might come on to Cameron and 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 um, Co took over in um, 2010. There was a kind of more sort of fierce anti-regulation agenda imposed, but it didn't really change the direction of travel. Um, we we were still on that path. Can I ask you to talk about one civil servant? So he's called Brian Martin. He comes up in the book a lot, and he, as I understand it, is the person who is alleged to have said, "Show me the bodies." So can you, which is the title of your book. So can you talk about this phrase, show me the bodies, and can you talk a little bit about Brian Martin, who he was and what he did or what he didn't do? Yeah. So his comment, show me the bodies, um, which as you say, it's, it's alleged he, he denied using it when he was asked at the inquiry. Um, he, he, he was, after the Lacanal House fire, which we were talking about right at the start of the interview, and then the coroner's inquest telling the government that it needed to take some action to stop this happening again. Um, Brian Martin is, is, according to the witness statement of an architect called Sam Webb, um, who passed away recently. He, Sam was sitting next to Brian at a dinner or a lunch of some sort, and he said, you know, why haven't you done more to prevent a repeat of the Lacanal House fire? And Brian Martin explained to him that the government didn't think it was worth imposing more restrictions on industry because deaths in fires were falling every year. There were fewer and fewer people dying in fires. So why did we need um, more restrictions on um, business, basically? And Sam responded to that saying, well, you're you, 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 you you're risking a disaster here, basically. Um, and Brian replied, according to Sam, with the words, show me the bodies. Um, now, the thing is, it's true that fire deaths have been falling since the 1980s. Um, it's a matter of public record. The reasons for that are because people smoke less. People tend to have smoke alarms now. People do a bit less cooking via chip pans, that sort of stuff. It, it, th those deaths are falling in existing 
properties built in for the Victorian era as fast as they're falling in new build homes. It's, it's in no way a vote of confidence in our building regulations. So it was a convenient um, way of looking at the statistics to, to, to avoid doing something which the government didn't want to do, which was review the regulations and possibly tighten them. Um, I think Brian Martin is, is a, is a key player in this. He, he, um, he came into government in, in the mid 1990s, sort of worked in the private sector and with government, he had a kind of crossover role, um, at first and then became a a civil servant full time. Um, and he, he found himself despite, you know, he, 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 he was a building control officer for, for some local authorities. And before that he was, he was a joiner. He, but he found himself in a position where he was effectively the sole person in charge of these regulations, this guidance book for builders to follow um, with regard to fire safety. And he was told some pretty specific things about the the risk of a disaster. It wasn't just the Lacanal house fire, but he, he, he was told he went to a meeting in 2014 and the minutes show that he, he was warned there that um, ACM, which had been linked to fires in the Middle East, was being used on buildings in the UK. And they suggested to him that he should publish a frequently asked question just to say, by the way, <laughs> probably shouldn't use that stuff. Um, he didn't do that. Um, he got an email saying that there was uh, from a, from somebody who sold cladding saying that I've the companies I work for have been selling this stuff. And it's in use in buildings in the UK. There should be grave concern that a fire like that could happen. And But just a couple of weeks before that email, Brian Martin had told his seniors that a fire was very unlikely to happen in the UK, a fire like the ones in the Middle East, because our regulations were secure and those types of products weren't being used. Um so he plays this kind of pivotal role as this guy who had responsibility for this area of the building regulations, got frequent warnings, but it doesn't, well, I mean, by his own admission, he didn't do much about them. Um, I think what's interesting about Brian Martin is this question of how much blame sits with him as an individual and how much blame sits with the government and governments for which he worked. Um, because Brian Martin was described at the inquiry by himself, but also by a senior civil servant as a single point of failure. Um, And I don't think that that would ever stand up, really. I think when Brian Martin said the words, show me the bodies, allegedly, he was not just giving his own personal views. I think he was explaining to Sam Webb what the government that he worked for thought. Um, And even if he was just the the single point of failure it was also the decision of those governments to leave someone so junior and so underqualified in such a pivotal role and not take those issues more seriously you know the Lacanal house coroner's inquest was addressed to eric pickles um who for readers with 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 um listeners sorry with um shorter memories was a senior member of the the coalition governments it wasn't addressed to brian martin and so he plays he plays an important role but i kind of hopefully make it clear in the book that he if 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 the government tries to sort of stand him up as a scapegoat it wouldn't really um work and that's uh, that point about falling fire deaths is interesting because i suppose you know if i mean reading your book does not make one want to be sympathetic to any of these governments yeah but if you were trying your hardest to sort of say maybe it wasn't malice and incompetence they're saying look we don't have a problem with fire deaths at the moment. They're going down. That, mm. that arrow is pointing in the right direction. We do have a problem with house building. Um, that arrow is pointing in the wrong direction. Um, so when we look at regulations, we're concerned with the problem we currently have, which is not enough houses are being built. And we're not mm. particularly concerned with fire safety because that seems to be going okay. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, I think it's overly sympathetic. Yeah. But I mean, what, what, what do you think of that reading of the situation? I mean, I think that there there probably are people who who held government roles and civil service roles for whom that's true. Like, I think a lot of people who who work in the public sector ultimately go in with the best intentions. You know, uh, like I, uh, I think that 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 exact reasoning that you've described is how some people were thinking about it. I think it's flawed reasoning, obviously. And I think one of the one of the things that's flawed about it is that you what you see in fire deaths is 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 small 
repeatable incidents. You don't see a sort of low probability but really high consequence event. Um, and you need to look at, if you're in charge of regulations, you need to be a bit more precautionary and think, okay, something hasn't happened yet in this country or hasn't happened recently in this country, but does that really mean it can't happen? Um, and so in, for some people, it's not malice, it's a failure of imagination. That is, that is, uh, I think, fair. But I think that it's also true that at certain times and for certain people within government, some of these warnings were so clear and so specific that they can't get off the hook with that, I don't think. Let's talk about this from another angle. I think what's really powerful about your book is how it sort of combines the analysis you've been giving there of of, of how sort of politically and bureaucratically it came to pass that there was such a dangerous situation, a context where this fire could happen. You also intersperse that with stories about the people who you know either were rescued from the fire or who tragically lost their lives in the fire. Um, and I wanted to get you to talk about that a bit and especially I suppose some of the people who passed away. So you had an Italian couple in their 20s, Gloria Trevisan and Marco Cotardi. You had a, a lady called Rania Ibrahim and her children, a lady called Debbie Lamprell, and you sort of give a context of their lives and yeah, how they passed away. So could you talk about that a little bit, please? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, it was, it was, it was probably, I mean, it was the hardest part of writing a book, doing that stuff and getting it right. It was the stuff that, that, you know, if I was thinking about how to present this and how to go about it, that's definitely the, the elements that played on my mind the most. If I was going to write a book about Grenfell, I had to make it really apparent to the readers that this is a, this is human beings, you know, because you, you can lose that a bit in the discussions of, of building regulations and corporate misdeeds and failed fire tests and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so there's, there's the, you know, 72 victims of the Grenfell Tower fire. Um, I reached out to uh, the, in the first instance, the, the lawyers representing some of the families just to ask for, you know, either permission to, to, to use some of the things that the inquiries put in the public domain about them or to do an interview with some either a survivor or a surviving relative um and so that that group of people the group of people that I talk about in detail in the book are, are the ones that that came back and said yes basically um and so to to, to go through some of them uh, you talked about Rania and her children Rania came from um Egypt uh she she she'd married someone she met in the UK and they they, they lived a, a really happy life um at the top of the tower, her husband was was um, in Egypt on the night of the fire, um, turning to a sick relative. So he lost his his wife and his two children. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the Italian couple as well. They were they were they were um, tenants of a private landlord at the top of the tower. I mean, they they moved to England again quite recently. They they were just you know really at the start of what was looking like a kind of really exciting career for both of them. Um, I think Gloria just got a job um, at this kind of really high. Um, high-end architects firm renovating historic buildings which was she'd been to architecture school in Vienna and it was something she'd, she'd always dreamed of doing that specific thing um, and I think they they were due to kind of they could have in a, in a, if things were very slightly different they'd have flown back to Italy that night for um, a family gathering and, and wouldn't have been there um, but as it was they um, they were and you know, the, Gloria was on the phone to her mother for, for, for quite a few hours while she was trapped in the flat. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, um, Debbie worked at the, the, the um, Holland Park Opera, um, came from North London, sort of very, you know, London family. Um, she spent a lot of time with her mum in the tower. Mum still lived in kind of North London, always came to visit her. Neighbours would comment on like the noise the two women were made laughing together because they were so close and um again just someone who was living a living a good life and and the fact that it was disrupted and ended at that point so long before it should have been um it's just yeah i mean th th that evidence has been been brought out by the inquiry and i think i wanted to make it very apparent to anyone who read the book about the kind of the level of loss that people have endured and I mean, I think the thing that makes me most angry reading the book is sort of regulations in these corporate, um, you know, these, these companies who, who knowingly put flammable cladding on, on a residential building. I mean, potentially the thing that reads as the most tragic and is the most frustrating as you read it 
is you give an account sort of hour by hour through the night and say people like Gloria and, and Marco, the young Italian couple I especially remember, they could so easily have survived, right? They knew for a long time that this fire was happening and they could have very easily escaped the building, but they were told to stay put. And, you know, the long-term reason they died is all of what we've been talking about, mm. but the short-term reason they died is because instead of leaving the flat, they were told to stay where they were for for, for hours, you know? And I suppose, yeah, I mean, could you talk about this stay put policy? That- yeah, yeah, okay. So, I mean, like the kind of, the, the sort of historical reason for this, because it seems so kind of counterintuitive, is, um, you know, we've always, in England particularly, we've always kind of focused on, trying to stop fire spreading from one building to another. And that goes back to the Great Fire of London because it burned the whole city down when that didn't happen. So that that's the kind of focus of, of building regulations. In the 1960s, we start building tower blocks. And so that focus comes into the, the way regulations guide tower block building as well. They demand that they're designed so that effectively you've got a series of concrete boxes that will survive a fire burning and not spread. And so because of that, um, it becomes accepted that it's safer for a resident in a, 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 a different concrete box to stay where they are than come out of their flat and go down the stairs and potentially get exposed to some smoke that's come out of the front door or whatever. Um, and so this kind of idea of stay put becomes um, a bit of a mantra for uh, people who are involved in fire safety in the UK, to fire services, fire risk assessors, housing managers, and so on. But the thing is, because it becomes so, um, you know, because it gets taken so much to heart, we, we don't ever really think about a plan B. Um, and we don't put things in place that you might need for a plan B, like a second staircase. Most most tower blocks in the UK only have one. We don't put block wide fire alarms in. So how do you wake people up to tell them to get out? Um, and crucially for this fire, we don't ever train our firefighters um, in what to do if stay put starts to fail and a, a fire starts to spread up and around the building. All they have to go on is this idea that stay put works. It's safer for people to stay put. You probably shouldn't evacuate a building. And so at Grenfell, when the fire does start spreading out of control, um, they revert to that you know, innate um, belief that that's how you fight a fire in a um, high-rise building. Uh, and as you say, the, the, the advice is given to people are phone a fire brigade. Many of, many of, not all, but many of the, the people who died in the fire have at some point a conversation with a call handler, um, 999 call handler, or they speak to someone who had that um, advice from a call handler and are told to stay put. Um, you know, uh, also, which is is a very relevant factor, um, the la- the landings outside people's flats got very smoky, very fast, and so kind of if you kind of put yourself in that position, and you imagine particularly if you have children, opening the front door to what is effectively a wall of 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 choking smoke, it's very natural to to close the door and phone nine 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 instead of. Otherwise, you might see some fire outside the building, open the door and just run and not even phone 999, but just get outside. But if you open the door and see that smoke, there's a good chance you're going to shut the door, phone a fire brigade. And then if they tell you their help's going to come, they say to you, stay put, stay where you are. A firefighter will come soon to help your child, your, your grandmother, your, your, your disabled husband out of the building. There's a very good chance that you're going to remain and wait for that help. So that the, the 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 fact that people were stay, stayed in a building is to do with the stay put policy and it's to do with that failure of the building to to stop that smoke spreading onto the landings because that's what made people go and phone 999 um but yeah i mean I, uh, it's it, it's a uh, um you know i think it's where we get into talking about the london fire brigade there, there was that failure on the night um to order an evacuation earlier than they did um, but there was also a kind of long-term failure to think about that. Like, and the, the the London Fire Brigade at a quite senior level was aware that fires could get out of control in high-rise buildings. I mean, they even had a sort of power, PowerPoint presentation where they, they went around fire safety conferences talking about like the risk 
of big cladding fires in high-rise buildings, but they never developed a policy to give to their front line about what to do in those circumstances. And, um, you know, that was a, that was a serious failure, which, you know, it, it took the, the, the first phase report was critical of the London Fire Brigade and that upset a lot of people. But it, on, on that count, um, they, they, I think they have to acknowledge that, 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 that they got things wrong um, because there should have been thinking about how to do that. I mean, it's worth saying, you know, your, your book does make very clear sort of the individual heroism of, of, of the firefighters there and the situation they were sent into, but also the failings of, you know, I suppose the, the higher ups in the fire brigade. And it is interesting because they were, you know, I was sort of looking for, I suppose in, in this book, you've just got every layer of bureaucracy seems to have failure, 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 yeah. failure, failure, you know, central government failed, business failed, local government failed, the fire brigade failed, but they, there was... I was sort of looking for who was sounding the alarm. And it was the fire brigade sometimes, to be fair to them, right? They were saying, this cladding is dangerous. It shouldn't be on high-rise buildings. But there is also then an internal contradiction because they're saying, this cladding is dangerous on high-rise buildings. A whole building could go up in flames. At the same time, they're saying, the only policy we need is stay put. Now, if you're aware that a building can go up in flames, then you should abandon, stay put. But I suppose they were thinking, well, you know, if we had our way, there would be stay put. And maybe they sort of, said it's not our problem in a way. I, I completely agree with that. I mean, I, I honestly think that it's, it's worse for the London Fire Brigade that they, they gave those warnings because um, it meant they knew that they needed a policy for how to fight a fire in one of those buildings. Um, and I think that there was, there's some evidence of concern about like the kind of London Fire Brigade's relationship with local authorities if they start getting too kind of heavy handed with um, warnings about cladding and that kind of thing. Um and yeah, if you if you if you're responsible for 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 the lives of of you know people who need your help and also for your crews, then you need to think about what will happen in the circumstances that we know might happen. Um, and at senior level, that was something that didn't. Um, and you know, with 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 pretty terrible consequences. Did the tenure of the housing matter? So, I mean, you know, I remember when the fire first happened, there was a lot of discussion about the fact that this was a majority ethnic minority block of flats, majority working class. The council had behaved, or the council, the housing management firm had behaved in you know a very dismissive way of its tenants. And so this was very much framed as a story about inequality. I mean, as, as time went on and, you know, the discussion moved to cladding, that shifted somewhat because people realised this cladding was on all sorts of buildings and, you know, a luxury flat could also have had a fire go right up the side in, you know, a a matter of minutes. Um, So that sort of class angle sort of was less to the fore and it became one more about failures of regulation. I want to know your thoughts on that. Could Grenfell have happened in what we would call a block of luxury flats? I think that's a really interesting question. And, you know, I agree with the the, the things you were saying in in framing it. I mean, um, I've been to a block of flats where with Grenfell style cladding, almost kind of identical cladding systems where they've got kind of underground car parks with Lamborghinis in and stuff. You know, this like it's something that people do need to understand, like um, a failure of regulation of this level affects all of us. Um, If you've stayed in, you know, a, a, a high end, not even high end, but sort of budget hotel chain at any point in your life, there's a good chance you've slept in a building with dangerous cladding on its walls because it, the hotel sector's had quite a big problem with that, student housing as well. Um, so on one level, you could look at that and say, well, actually, this 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 kind of fire could have happened anywhere. Um, it's just a coincidence that it happened to be in social housing. But I, I think that, that that misses quite a few important points I think what you could say is a cladding fire could have happened in any building, but Grenfell could have only happened in social housing um, because there's much more to what made Grenfell the tragedy it was than, um, than just the cladding on the walls. I mean, you know, to take, for instance, the kind of the, 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 the mismanagement of conditions inside the building, um, I think two thirds of the fire doors, flat entrance fire doors in Grenfell were um, were malfunctioning. Um, that is a really serious um, level of management failure. And that can't be discussed in absence from 
you know, poor maintenance of social housing more generally and um, the lack of any sort of level of investment in maintaining those buildings since they were built in the sort of 60s and 70s. Um, and also when people were raising concerns, I mean, you know, the the the, the residents of Grenfell Tower raised lots of fire safety concerns. Um, you know, uh, there's quite famous ones in a blog, Grenfell Action Group blog, which talks about like the risk of a, a, a huge tragedy, huge fire. Um, but there were also other ones. I mean, there was, um, you know, they, they residents knew that the, the smoke ventilation system was broken from as early as 2010. And we're talking, trying to get the council to fix that. And they were, they were being ignored, slapped down. Um, you know, in some instances, uh, there's evidence that people who raise complaints kind of had background checks done on their tenancy status and that kind of thing. And that sort of stuff, I'm not saying it doesn't happen in private blocks, but it happens a lot more in social housing blocks. And then also you kind of look after the fire and, and the way people were treated, which is part of the Grenfell Tower disaster and, and, and a huge contributing factor to some of the kind of harms that, that that community's suffered. And the way people were treated after the fire, absolutely had to do with their class and their race and I mean some of that is is, is just documented you know like the, the the Metropolitan Police risk assessment um talked about the risk of major public disorder because they they, they literally said this is it this is a majority Muslim community and the fires happened in the holy month of Ramadan um but that meant that people were receiving almost a public order response instead of a humanitarian one they were being effectively warehoused in these hotels and left without support um and they were being offered housing that was inappropriate for them but there was this kind of underlying feeling that because you're a social housing resident you should kind of accept anything we give you and be grateful for it um all of those things are really significant factors in Grenfell and all of those things have to do with class and race um but it's also the case that a cladding fire could have killed a lot of people in a private block. That's that's without doubt, um, you know. And and th 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 there was before Grenfell one of the things we I don't actually talk about that much in the book. But there was a, there was a lady called Sophie Rosser who um, who died in a, a fire in in a, in a block of flats near Canary Wharf. Um, and you know, it's just it's a one-off death, so it doesn't kind of get the sort of media attention of a big disaster, but she died because of building safety failures. And she lived in a private block with, um, you know, she paid a lot of money for it. And, um, uh, but the, the failures were there. I mean, like, um, I think it's really important thing for people to understand that Grenfell and fire safety, you can't exceptionalize that and just think it's something that affects only poor people. It, it does get all of us. And I suppose two two related questions. Um, have we learned from this? You know, ha have the lessons of Grenfell been learned? And then also, I mean, what's your assessment of the public inquiry? You know, ha has it been adequate? Um, so let's take the, the second part of your question first. I think, I think there's there's a, there's there's a lot of debate certainly in the community about the inquiry and whether it's been a good process or not. Um, my feeling personally is that it's 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 been it's it's been pretty you know pretty thorough and pretty ferocious at times and it's 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 a mechanism by which the details in which this book would never have come to light otherwise you know no journalist however good they are is ever getting their hands on those internal iconic emails it's not going to happen it has to be a kind of public body with statutory powers to compel people to release evidence and come to the witness stand and speak publicly and answer questions from you know one of the finest legal minds that this country has um and the inquiry has been unrelenting fierce and incredibly forensic in in the work it's done i have no criticisms of it in that regard other than kind of quite small ones about maybe they should have focused a bit more on this area or a bit less on that area or, but that would always be the case. I think the question with the inquiry that people often ask is, it's taken a very long time. You know, there's no getting around that fact. There's some excuses for it. They couldn't have predicted the global pandemic. Um, they probably couldn't have predicted how um, much detail they were going to have to go into to understand this story. But we're five and a half years on, the inquiry report hasn't been written yet. And that's a really long time to ask people to wait for justice. The Met Police investigation is not going to, progress until the inquiry gets out of the way and there's there's very legitimate anger about that in the community they 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 as we didn't want a kind of long legalistic process we wanted to see people held to account and i completely understand why people would think that and say it 
I think the one thing that I would say back to that is this evidence is complicated. It's very difficult to 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 like pick through and understand. Um, what's happened because of the inquiry is that that evidence has been discussed in a public forum where the the, the community has had access to to good legal representation. Um, and uh, we can all see now those documents I would prefer that I think and that leads that is a better chance of justice than if that stuff's considered behind closed doors by relatively poorly resourced and non-specialist crown prosecution service lawyers um but the test for that will be do we get prosecutions or not for the community um in terms of the, the question of change there has been some change since Grenfell that we, we've banned combustible cladding. It took took a long time to get to that point. Um, so we're back to the position of the Great Fire. Of right, London. right. We yeah, we've we've, we've we've gone back we've to we sort of decided that actually maybe they had some ideas after watching half the city burn down, um, and that's great for new build blocks. But dealing with um, uh, existing buildings, of which there are thousands, with that kind of cladding is much more difficult. Um, I think. What worries me probably even more is that the government has just not addressed this question of evacuation. Um, the government has kind of tried to describe Grenfell as a kind of one-off unfortunate incident where so many specific failings went wrong. It was just about this dodgy combustible cladding. And really, you we need to go, okay, this is a difficult question to answer, but we have to answer it. How do we get everyone out of a building if things go wrong? Um, and particularly, it hasn't been addressed for people with disabilities. There's, there's lots of people because of a kind of a long legacy of not building enough kind of properly adapted housing. There are lots of people in tower blocks in the UK who have disabilities. And also because of aging. I mean, like people might have moved into a tower block when they were 30 and now they're 80. Um the the Grenfell Tower fire disproportionately killed disabled people and it also killed relatives and loved ones of disabled people who would never have left their their um uh their their relative alone to die and and, and therefore stayed and died with them um the the, the inquiry recommended what, what are called personal emergency evacuation plans um for people to have a way out if they're affected by fire and they live in a high rise block um the government the home office has specifically rejected that because they say it's disproportionate it's not necessary buildings are safe we can rely on stay put fire deaths are falling we're back to this way of talking um and i think that that's i think that's horrendous really and i think that um that means that this could happen again i think it, w it would probably happen again in a slightly different way um if there's another big cladding fire then someone has has very seriously um not followed the 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 post Grenfell guidance, but there are other ways for buildings to fail. Um, and if they fail and they, they affect people with disabilities, those people aren't going to be able to get out. Um, and that is a very difficult thing to stomach, um, especially for the people who lost disabled relatives at Grenfell. Um, you know, it's a difficult question to answer, but it's not an impossible one. You know, you need to start thinking about, you know, how can you find someone a buddy within the building how can you train that person to use an evacuation chair etc etc um and maybe for some people who someone say who's completely bed bound um with no relatives no um neighbors in the block who are willing to help it might be too too difficult but um at least if the other 15 people in the building have got a plan that leaves the fire brigade needing to save one person um so yeah, I mean that that is that's the most kind of egregious um failure to learn the lessons from Grenfell, very specific lessons. I think there's a broader failure to understand that this was a failure of a philosophy as well as just a specific set of kind of fire um engineering principles. We're still talking about deregulation, we're still talking about cutting red tape and setting business free. Both the Labour Party and the Conservatives are talking about that. Um and not really appreciating that that puts people at risk. Um, and I find that very dispiriting, to be honest, to be five years on and still hear, um, you know, boasts about cutting red tape and that sort of stuff. That was Peter Apps talking to me about his book, Show Me the Bodies, How We Let Grenfell Happen. I really do recommend reading it.
For now, you've been listening to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. To support the show and access all episodes, sign up for as little as £3 a month at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. That's patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. Crash Course is produced and edited by Lewis Bassett and Patrick Herdman. Patrick Herdman does the sound design.